everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu, episode number 115. My name is Gabe Estel, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dennis Levi Leach and Jonathan Getz. Good to see you guys. How are you doing? Cowabunga. Good. Good. Excellent. Really excited tonight because we're talking about, I think, one of the vanguard years in music of our lifetime, and maybe even any lifetime. Tonight, we're going to focus on 1992 in music and baseball. Some things, some storylines that emerged during 1992. Rap music is now the mainstream, with albums like The Chronic dominating the charts, as well as several other platinum releases in 1992. The 1970s are cool again, um, with the G-Funk era um, dominating West Coast hip-hop. Madonna's Deeper and Deeper video as well as um, the bell-bottom look of the Black Crows uh, with a number one album on the charts. Also, with baseball, the Oakland A's dynasty, which dominated the American League and much of baseball from 1988 onward, comes to a close in 1992 with the trade of Jose Canseco and a failure for the A's team to make the World Series. So, Let's go ahead and kick it off with baseball talk from 1992. Guys, what do you what do you make of the year of 92 in baseball? I forgot Harold Baines was on the A's. <laughs> yes. He was, yeah. Yeah, good good point. Um I always get confused. You know, he was on after the White Sox, he was on the Rangers and then he was on the A's. I kind of get confused. Oh, okay. And then he came back to the White Sox in a, a, like before he retired. So I, I, I get confused with like when he was on. He was my favorite player, but I I get confused like Texas. He was on Baltimore for a little while. He was on the A's. I the 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 non White Sox years blurred to me with with Baines. So. Sure. Yeah. Rightfully so. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Van- Vanguard year for uh, Canadian baseball uh, for yes. sure. The, the the first time a. Uh, uh, a team outside the U.S. not only won the World Series, but just made it to the World Series. Right. Um, and so, you know, putting the world into World Series. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, though I also argue that the players themselves do that since they come from around the world. Um, True. <laughs> also, um, the Braves, uh, back-to-back World Series appearances, back-to-back World Series losses, right? Yeah. Yeah, so whereas Toronto was the bridesmaid for a dozen years leading up to um, 1992, um, you know, just missing out on division titles and and uh, the pennants or, and AL pennants, yeah, Atlanta yeah. would begin their run of uh, uh, near uh, just near misses. This is not also not only if I'm if. I should have this up to verify it, but maybe somebody else can, with quicker fingers, can get to it. This is Toronto's not only first World Series, but also first playoff appearance. Um, no, I believe that they had uh, they had made it to the. Uh, I believe that they had that ma- they had made it into the playoffs before. Uh, in eighty five, they won the AL East in eighty five, eighty nine, ninety one. Oh geez, okay. Yeah. All right. I had um, um I did not know they were that successful during those years. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they're, they're really it was a lot tougher to make the playoffs then. But anyway. It was, yeah, yeah. I mean, only two teams per league, and uh, you win your division, and you're in the championship series, man. You, you look at the standings from, like, the 80s and 90s, 80s and 70s, 80s, 90s, early 90s, you know, when it was just two divisions in each league. Like, you'll see all these teams with, like, 93 wins not making the playoffs. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. If, um, I believe that the – the best team in 92 uh, in terms of, like, run differential. Um, so the expected wins based on run differential was the Milwaukee Brewers, who who uh, lost out by four games behind the Blue Jays mm-hmm. for the AL East. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, yeah, it was pretty even there with the Blue Jays, A's, and Pirates each winning 96 games and then the Braves winning 98. It was, it was a fairly even uh, competition from that perspective um but yeah like no no uh division race was closer than four games it kind of makes you appreciate the wild card era and how how much more intrigue it adds the last week of the season whereas there was no intrigue really in the last yeah. week of the of the yeah. 1992 season robin young did get his three thousand hit and george Brett. yeah yeah they both right yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of interesting I think they were drafted the same year as well. I didn't, you know, going back and you do the research and you see the stuff, I didn't realize how stacked on paper the Padres were. Like Tony Gwynn, Tony Fernandez, Gary Sheffield. um, Who else? There's somebody else. Oh, Fred McGriff. Yeah, they were the the, – Like like the Padres were like stacked on paper. Yeah, they were. Um, but they only Spinach. ended up 82 and 80. And, I mean, that was like when all those guys were in, like, primes of their career. Yeah. Levi, on go over to the American League and a team that, like, didn't really finish very strong but also was actually pretty stacked that year. The Tigers were pretty stacked, too, their offense. And they finished 21 games out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the record doesn't show it, but, yeah. like, Fielder is on his tear still. Yeah. Right? Trammell and Whitaker are still playing. You got Rob Deere, you know, some power there. Mickey Tettleton had a had a really good year, and yeah. I think is probably his best year yeah. in '92. Um, so, like Detroit, like I, I don't know, maybe the pitching wasn't there, but they should have been better. You know, right. same thing with the Padres. Um, Padres had those sweet pinstripe unis still then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a specific era of Padre uniform that um, <laughs> is, I think, underappreciated. I like those; they're kind of. Yeah. Kind of a cream with like a pinstripe, yeah. with brown pinstripes yeah. on them. Those yeah, look good. Yeah, good. I like those. So I, I I noticed that Fred McGriff led the league, led the NL in home runs that year with only 35 home runs. Uh, and so I, I looked up to see how that year was for home runs compared to other years. And it turns out that like based on a per team, per game rate, it's it's the lowest rate of home runs since 1981 wow yeah yeah uh just like 0.72 home runs per team per game where nowadays it's it's been well above one uh for the last 15 years i think Uh, so that explains why fred mcgriff was able to lead the league with only 35 home runs (laughs) Oh, how many did uh, oh McGriff was on the McGriff was in the National League? Right? Yeah, and then yep. so in the, in the American League it was Juan, Juan Gon Juan Gonzalez with forty three yeah, home yeah. runs for the Rangers. Uh huh. 
Yeah. And then Fielder would have had quite a few as well. Uh, he had, actually only had 30, only 35. Only 35, yeah. So it just goes so, to show. Yeah. 124 RBIs, though. Fielder leads the league in RBIs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought he had the, the RBI title that year. Get, we were we were texting about this the other day, so I'll, I'll pivot to it, guys. Since I've got um, I've got the MVP voting um, the finishers up right now. We were having a conversation to our listeners at home. We were having a conversation via text earlier in the week about a pitcher getting the MVP award, right? Um, which which happened that year in the in 1992 in the American League with Dennis Eckersley, a relief winning. pitcher at that, a relief pitcher. Yeah, at that. yeah. Two questions, guys. Um, what do you think of him getting it that year, and what do you think of pitchers getting MVP votes? I'll let Levi go first. Um, I mean, I don't think there's a hill I'm going to die on either way. For it, <laughs> but it, 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 the, I kind of think that the Cy Young Award is for pitchers. Yep. So why? I, uh, and I mean, the only way I could see giving it to a, a pitcher would possibly be a a starting pitcher uh, i'm not so sure that don't get me wrong dennis eckersley is like one of the greatest relievers of all time but it just seems i don't know it it, it seems not right <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i think the writers were just taken by that you know 50 plus saves and the 1.91 era and and don't get me wrong, it was a great season. But like, is he the most valuable player to his team? Like, like I don't I don't know. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I feel like some of the more potent offensive players sure from McGuire that year. Yeah, like like McGuire would have been the MVP because yeah. he was out for like a month and then they tanked. Roberto Alomar was really really good. Frank Thomas was yeah, really really good. Uh, Pocket was Puckett really had, good. Pocket had 210 hits and he hit yeah. 329. Honestly, and, Clemens probably should have, um, probably should have received more MVP votes than Dennis Eckersley, and Clemens didn't receive any. Um, or no, I'm sorry, he, he did receive four percent. So whatever that is. Yeah. Um, uh, and, I mean, Clemens had 8.7 WAR compared to Eckersley's 2.9. Granted, it wasn't a stat then. That you could lean on, but um, it, your socks really the only the only light yeah. they got shined on them all year was Reardon getting the all time saves leader. Yeah, as a team, they weren't that good. The Red Sox, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. It, was it that year that Reardon became the leader? Yeah, wow. Ninety two, he became the all time wow. saves leader. Wow, he held it for what maybe a, two, a few years, and that was it. Yeah. Um, before Lee Smith maybe took it or. I mean, you have the Rollades Reliever of the Year, which is not like the sexiest baseball yeah. award, you know. I mean, obviously, it's got something. Uh, it's got antacid, you know, um, <laughs> in in the title of it, you know. So <laughs> cool firefighter um, helmet trophy. I mean, yeah, right. Yep. Right. So it's cool. Don't get me wrong. It's quirky and cool. Um, but it's like you know, Eckersley was so good that year. You don't want to just relegate him to. So the Rollades reliever of the year, it feels like he needs to be honored more, but maybe not quite the MVP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah, if you want to vote for him down ballot on the 
on there, then then okay, that makes sense. Um, but as far as like ruling out pitchers altogether for the MVP ballot, I don't, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily do that um, because if a really special showing does come up in a given year, then you have to recognize it. Um, and, and I'm okay with that, but I am skeptical of, of Eck here. But don't, don't get me wrong, it was a hell of a season. Hell of a mustache, hell of a season. Yeah, that's um, right. I, 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 I'm with Levi, though. I, we park our cars in the same garage there. I, I you, You've got the Cy Young Award. It's nearly of the same caliber, I would say. Pretty close, you know? So either they publicize the Cy Young Award to, to make it totally on par with, with um, the MVP, or they just don't give it to pitchers. I look at the stats that year, and um, I look across the, the the stat line and also taking into account that his team won the World Series. I don't know. I don't have his war pulled up in front of me here. Oh, uh, 6.6. That's pretty good. Um, that's really good. Um, I'd give it to Robbie Alomar. Yeah. He'd be the MVP for me that year. Yeah. I mean, look at this. 310 batting average. I mean, he wasn't really ever a power hitter, so that's kind of a non-factor here. Um, 177 hits, 105 runs. His on-base percentage was 405. 49 stolen bases. Four and oh, yeah, 49 <laughs> stolen bases. Like nobody, <laughs> and nobody else on the MVP list really yeah. even close to that. Did, did he win or, a Gold uh, Glove? Well, that Brady year? Anderson yeah. had 53. But anyway, what's that? He may have won a Gold Glove that year too. May have. So yeah, yeah. that would be that would be my um, my MVP for that year. Um, and he finished sixth. He he did win a gold glove that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. He probably should have finished top three at the lead, yeah. at worst. I mean, obviously, the Blue Jays year. You've got three Blue Jays players in the top six for yeah. MVP voting. Yeah. And I, I have to admit, I, I think of Joe Carter and I think of Robbie Alomar. I kind of forgot about Dave Winfield until I was reviewing this episode. You know. Yeah. Like I just, yeah. I just, I, I think of you know obviously all the success earlier in the career. Yeah, as a as a forty year old, uh, he really produced. Yeah, uh, uh, twenty six home runs, hundred eight RBI. Man, yeah. yeah, can't argue with that. Um, I I do my biggest beef with the awards that year is the AL Rookie of the Year. <laughs> I will die on this hill. Okay. <laughs> um, that that year, uh, Pat Listash uh, won the AL Rookie of the Year, and uh, it wasn't even close. He received twenty votes compared to Kenny Lofton, who who received seven votes. Um, Pat Listash for the Brewers, Kenny Lofton for Cleveland. Uh, Kenny Lofton had better stats in every category except he had four fewer hits, and Kenny Lofton led the league in stolen bases. And somehow Pat Listash absolutely torches him in the Rookie of the Year vote. I don't get it. Yes, yeah. It is we weird. have a conspiracy, maybe? Oh. Uh, Listash struck out 124 times compared to Kenny Lofton's 54 at that. Granted, he had five. Wow. He did also have five more RBI. Excuse me. But <laughs> uh, overall, though, uh, Kenny Lofton uh, should have won that hands down. Uh, and obviously yeah. he had the better career, so I guess he had the better career. Yeah. Um, 
gosh, prior to researching this episode, I probably hadn't thought of the name Pat Listash in 30 years, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, for sure. Another guy that, you know, was th- his career year, um, and Listash didn't play that long, by the way, as well. When you look him up, he he he, he did not have a long career. Um, another guy that uh, had his career year that I totally had forgotten about is Mike Devereaux. Oh, on yeah, the yeah. Um, for the Orioles, yeah, yeah, he was a stud in '92. I know, and that's that's kind of his his crowning achievement. I mean, he he played for a while. I mean, he got 12 years in the big leagues, but um, obviously that's that's far and away. Yeah, you know, he hit for average a few, pretty well a few seasons, but um, it looks like there was maybe like about a four four or five year period where he was a starter. Um, and this is this is in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. He, he enjoyed the new stadium, Camden Yards. Yeah, Camden Yards opened, opened in '92. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was that was a big uh, shift in in uh, baseball stadiums, no doubt. And and the Sky Dome was fairly new, still, right? I believe '88 or '89 it opened. Okay, yeah. I remember, I thought that was so cool. You're watching the World Series that year, and it had the Hard Rock Cafe in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um. Uh. So it. Uh. In in the history of uh. You know things happening that year. Uh. It was the uh, last year for uh, future Hall of Famers Gary Carter and Burt Blylevin. Okay. Uh, last last year that they played. Meanwhile, who was, uh, was Carter on that last year? Mm. Expos or uh, Dodgers, maybe right. Uh, I want to say he played in L.A. near the end of his career. Uh, he did go back to Montreal in '92. Okay. Um, he, he did play. He played for the Dodgers the year prior. Okay. Yeah, right. and the Giants the year before that. Um, I think I cut you off. Go on. I'm that's sorry. okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, Gary Carter's uh, swan song uh, was that year. The late Gary Carter. Uh, and uh, as well as Burt Belialev. And meanwhile, uh, we had two debuts of future Hall of Famers in Mike Piazza and Pedro Martinez. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so a nice little bit of two and two uh, synchronicity there uh, with the right. Hall of Fame. Levi, how were the Cubs in 92? Um... You know, I I didn't look up a ton of their stats. Same here I with know, the White Sox. We were. I know that it was kind of like it, it, it was a, it was a tough year in Chicago, and you know why? Because yeah. it was Andre Dawson's first year with the Red Sox. Oh, did we trade him in the middle of '92? Is that when that was? How did? I was thinking that it was like 93 or something. Maybe did the Red Sox acquire Andre Dawson? Was he just a free agent? <clears throat> it was, um, I'm sorry, it was his last year um, with the yeah, Cubs. I was going to say, I thought it was getting to be, it was like the last of kind of the 89 core. So yeah. it would have been like the last year for like Dawson to have played there with Sandberg and Grace and Dunstan. And... um a little quiet trade was done between the Chicago teams that year. Oh, Sammy yeah. Sosa. Gosh, the, you t- I totally to the forgot Chicago about the Cubs Sosa trade, man. And George Bell? Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, it, yeah good, good, good catch, man. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that would that would have later implications in about six years, right? I mean, that that changed that changed your franchise quite a bit, Levi. You oh, know, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, for the next, yeah, for the next, um, you know, close to well, maybe not quite ten years, but but close to it. It was all so so. Right. You know, he was he was oh, the yeah. he was the toast was the of guy. the town. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, him and Thomas, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. They uh you guys had Thomas and we got Sosa and it was those two guys kinda were the home run kings of Chicago for quite a while. Gabe, Absolutely. you got two seasons with George Bell out of that deal. Um he had only been with the Cubs for one year. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. I knew he Yeah. Crazy. Uh, but yeah, I would say the Cubs got better into that deal. Asterisks yeah. be damned. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Sure. right. I think George Bell did okay for us. Like, right? Maybe one of those stars. I think he did all right. Um, he was he was okay. <laughs> all right. He 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 had twenty five home runs and one hundred twelve RBI for you in ninety two. So uh, that's solid. Under twelve um, RBIs is nothing to scoff at. No, yeah, uh, ninety nine OPS plus, so that's about league average. Um, but uh, he finished twentieth in the MVP voting, so you got that. All right. Yeah. Well, well, guys, I I mentioned in the intro um, about the A's, and we've we've talked a lot about the A's of the late eighties, early nineties on the podcast. But to me, this this year seems to kind of mark. Two, two th- to the end of two things. A, the A's dynasty, or close to dynasty, and B, it's kind of the last year I really collected baseball cards actively. Yeah, for sure. You know? Um, I'll, I'll start with the A's. Alright, so it starts really in 88. You know, they, they go 587 at 81 and 81. They win 104 games in 88, so they, they win 23 more. What? Uh, hold on. Yeah, 23 more games. That's quite a jump, you know. Uh, and then they lose the World Series in 88, 89. They, of course, they win the World Series. They sweep. Um, they get swept the following year, right? But That's Cincinnati, yeah. Yeah, you got a 90, uh, 99 wins in 89. Or 104 wins in 88, 99 and 89. 1990, when they get swept by Cincinnati, they got 103 wins. Um, which, what I recall of that year, I even though the Reds swept them and the Reds were a really dominant team that year, um, I think most people thought the A's would probably still win it, right? I sure. mean, before it started, I would guess. Yeah. All right, so... 91 is the the only really off year in this five-year run. They finished fourth, 11 games back. I don't know what happened. I don't know if there were injuries or something like that because it's it's largely the same team, you know? Still above 500 that year. Yeah, right. And then 92 this year, um, they win the AL West, right, Um, at 96 and 66. And then they lose, you know, to obviously the eventual – world champion Blue Jays in the ALCS. But also near the end of that year, they trade Canseco. 
Um, the so that that marks a clear end to me because I associate him so much with those five years that that I covered a moment ago. Also, he was, you know, 1988, 89. He's he's arguably baseball's biggest star, you know, or one. He's he's right up there. Um, so to me, that was a big deal when the A's traded him. Finally, I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, it's really ending for the A's now. You know what I mean? Yeah, breaking up the Bash Brothers, man. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who they, they get they for up finishing second in '94, which I guess was the strike sorting season. But '93, um, let's look. Think about this, guys. '93, they finished last, twenty six games out. <sighs> that's well, yeah. That's rough. Quite a drop. See that now. That's the A's that we're familiar with from first to worst. Right? <laughs> exactly. Back to first again. <laughs> they are the definitive first to worst team. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, you know that to me, like the um, the Conseco trade was a really big deal. That got a lot of attention, um, and it, it it marks the end of that era, certainly. Yeah, they got um, Jeff Russell and Ruben Sierra and Bobby Witt for Jose Conseco. Jeff Russell and finished the season with them, and that was it. Ruben Sierra played with them for a few years. Okay. Uh, and Bobby Witt um, was actually pretty good that year um, and played with him for a couple more years after that. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, well, yeah, good, good. Uh, it was, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to think of, man, the Blue Jays won two World Series as well, like consecutively. It's like, wow. Yeah, I, th- I think that they're probably it's like... Wild. Yeah, the the most forgotten back to back winners in Seems like, like all major sports. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. That, I I always forget that. It, the, you know what gets they are they are the the remember when the Houston Rockets won back to back NBA titles when when during, Jordan like, was retired years yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's the equivalent yeah. here I think. <laughs> There you go. I like well, it. And we can't we can't finish off the baseball talk without throwing a little love on to the to the Montreal Expos either. I uh, they were really good that year on paper as well with Larry Walker and Moises Alou had a hell of a rookie year in '92. Oh hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so yeah, gotta give the Expos a little love. Canada had it rolling that year, man. It was all coming up aces. Um. Uh, yeah, it, the Expos finished second that year. Uh, Marquise Grissom, uh, Delano De Shields would have been there too, I think. Ken Hill was really good for him. Dennis Martinez, uh, yeah, Delano. Yeah, man, you're right. And, and of course, you know this is leading up to their really good '94 team in the strike shortened year. Uh, so they mm-hmm. were. It was just getting rolling. Um, and of course, as we mentioned, uh, Gary Carter uh, was around for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the end of a pretty good, um, pretty good three-year run for the Pirates as well, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> hard to think Pittsburgh winning, winning three pennants in a row. Yeah. You know, they sold their soul. Uh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, they 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 lost every. I mean, they they never they never got to the World Series. Um, 
but uh, obviously those were uh, were prime Bonds Pittsburgh years, Bonds and Bonilla. Yeah, his final. It was Bond's final year in Pittsburgh, yeah. I believe. Andy Van Slyke. Yeah. yeah, he was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Good, great outfield there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's... Um, uh, with uh, Regarding the Blue Jays, though, that the... Um, uh, the rotation was was really solid as well. Um, Jack Morris pitching for him that year. Jack Morris and and you know he hogged a lot of the spotlight because he got the wins, but he had like a four plus ERA, so he was the beneficiary of some some run support there. Um, yeah. Juan Guzman was probably their best pitcher. Hinkin playing. Yeah. Was Hinkin in the rotation? Might have been. Uh, Morris, Jimmy Key, Juan Guzman, Todd Stottlemyre, and Dave Steeb. Um, okay. Yeah, Pat Hinkin was uh, in the uh, bullpen, a 23-year-old Pat Hinkin. Okay. Yeah. Steeb's underrated. He was underrated, yeah. Yeah. Um, there are some good podcasts about Dave Steeb. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there are. I'll, I'll uh, send you guys a link after the show. Um, but, yeah, Juan Guzman was, was really good that year. And Jack Morris was weird because he, um, the prior year, had won the World Series with the Minnesota Twins. Oh, yeah. He had gone home um to minnesota to play and they thought and the twins thought oh you're gonna finish your career with the twins and he won the world series and he's like all right see ya and (laughs) yeah i recall i recall that um a lot of people viewing him in an unfavorable light because of that (laughs) one of the many reasons (laughs) yes yeah um he's a guy that really benefited um his career from postseason great postseason play it's you know, why it's why he's in the hall of fame yeah because he was also on that 84 tigers team as well yeah, yeah. you know so yeah. he yeah. uh he was always in the right place at the right time too not not, not i'm not selling yeah. any of the guys you know career accomplishments yeah. short he's got good numbers mostly as well yeah but um yeah he was always he was always on the right team too yep 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 that's a good point and i guess if you throw 10 innings in a world series game people are ready to they're chiseling the bust before uh, the buses roll out of the stadium. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing we love more than a starting pitcher who goes more than nine innings. <laughs> that 92 would have been um, the year I kind of started getting into Ripken because that, that hype was starting to build. Because he would he would break the record in ninety four, is that right? Ninety five. Or ninety five. It was after the strike. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. but yeah, hit nineteen ninety two tops Cal Ripken is him leaning against Lou Gehrig's like plaque in the Hall of Fame. Ah, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. No, yeah. Like yeah. that could have totally jinxed the fucking streak. Like yeah. three full years before it was completed. It was a ballsy, ballsy move there, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, you're right. I'm looking at it now, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a landscape orient orientation card. Yeah. Um, Ninety two was when all the cards kind of were coming into the modern era of cards, as far yeah. as photography and all that. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, so, so now I guess this sounds like a good good time to segue into uh, into the cards. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Gabe, you mentioned that you felt like it was it was your last year. I also feel it was pretty much my last year of collecting full time. Yeah. Levi, how about you? Yeah, I would say like as far as buying lots of packs and trying to acquire like all the stars of the of the day, um, I was still into Ripkin after that. So like I would occasionally buy some packs in like ninety three, ninety four, ninety five to try to pull Ripkins Whoa. because his cards were like. You know what I mean? He, his cards were so hyped at that point. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, it, if you think about it, it's strange that they, like, hyped him up for so many years before the streak was even broke. You know? Can, I can't imagine any other athlete in any sport today to where they're, like, three years before he might break a record. Like, them, like, pushing it and being like, yeah, this guy's going to do it, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so yeah, I mean, after after ninety two, I dropped off as far as collecting everybody, and then kind of just only did Ripken until he broke the streak, and then I like kind of basically was done. He broke the he broke the streak in in ninety five in, in ninety five. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, I didn't yeah, I, 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 I'm I'm with you too. Like like Levi mentioned, you know, the market start, started to get a little a little oversaturated. Um, in '92 sure. for yeah. cards, um, I looked through my collection, and it just kind of stops. I've, I've got a I've got a handful of cards from '93, so obviously I bought a few packs, but um, I got a, the, the last year I've got a lot of baseball cards from is is '92. Is yeah, yeah, same. And, and all mine are high end stuff. Like then, then I was just like a shark. I was going doing upper deck and stadium club and Flare Ultra. That was yeah. Uh, so, I, so, I was so premium. The high end series begin series, you know, starts as well. Like I, I don't know if this is Stadium Club's first year or second year, maybe second. I think yeah, second year. Yeah. So you got that. You got Fleer Ultra, like you said. Um, it all it all just starts to become too much, um, and you know, market market collapses shortly thereafter. Um, so I mean, our our. Us losing interest in it kind of dovetails with just national trends anyway with baseball cards around that time, you know. For sure. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but but even tops that year, you know, they were starting to do some, like Levi pointed out, the better photography, um, even in their base sets, uh, some more interesting shots. Um uh, but yeah, the the stadium club was like a whole nother level of you know it was the Kodak film. Remember that they would advertise the Kodak film on, on stadium. The box. Oh yeah, they have the on the boxes. It would have the little Kodak logo. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the packs even too. There's the a, one thing I always like. There's there's, there's two club. things that have fallen: baseball cards and Kodak. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hand in hand, they went down together. Right. Um, but I always like Stadium Club for the fact that they would always have a little picture of their rookie card on the back of the card. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they would have, like, that a heat map, wouldn't cool. they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a nice yeah. touch. It, yeah, both of those were nice touches. Also, guys, I can't remember if one of you mentioned this earlier. This is this is the first year um, Tops cut out the gum. There's no gum on oh. 92 cards. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I think the first time that regular Tops 
had gold too. Do you remember there were some like there were alternate cards where their name would be like gold foil? I don't oh know yeah, that. right. They were like randomly right. inserted into packs. Yep, right. Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I do. I do recall that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, that was kind of a hint of uh, things to come for the decade. Right. Yeah. The George Brett card from Tops of that year is like, like a, it's like a shot up close shot of him holding the bat and smiling at the camera. It's kind yeah. of a weird card. Yeah, it, it, they kind of touched upon almost like the Leaf Studio style in yeah. some of their cards, um, with the poses. Now, now these are these are this is design wise, which you think of ninety two being just you know like, I don't know. LA gear tennis shoes and stuff like that. Maybe I'm maybe that's more 1990. Yeah. But anyway, the the cards that year are fairly minimal. The design of the tops that year. Yeah, I like them. You know, I, I yeah, I don't mind them either. They're 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 subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, and Frank, uh, Frank I, Thomas's card is really good looking from that year in tops. Yeah. It is. It's like yeah. it's like him sitting with his bat in the indoor batting cage. Another landscape shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a great that's a great one. Um, they did a lot of the like the player like busting out of the um, um, the the border, the border you know, overlaying yeah, the border, yeah. add some kind of layers to it. Yeah, but yeah, like like half of Frank Thomas's card is like an empty net with some balls next to him. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The yeah, between they, that, they, they play with space. Um, yeah, you're right. It is like a it's a it's a well composed shot. It's it's interesting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're kind of similar to the year before, I guess. Maybe be my only beef, like they're not that much different than the '91 design, which is what Tops did a lot throughout the years. Where from one year to the next, sometimes it really wouldn't change that much. Or or we saw that too with uh, with Don Russ for a couple of years in the yeah. '80s, where yeah. it really didn't change too much from one year to the next. But yeah, you're right, Gabe. Um, I like the I like the nameplate better though in '92 than in '91. Oh yeah, um, and the, the the team font is better in '92. Yeah, yeah, it got a little too small in '91. Well, '91, uh, I think it was '91's the year where they were cramming those 40th anniversary logos on all the cards too. Sure, right? sure, yeah. Well, let's um. We've got a lot of ground to cover with uh, music, with, yeah, with tunes, sure. and um, you know we were we were kind of worried about oh what can we talk about baseball? We kind of milked quite a bit of it there, so that's good. Well, um, and, and here's your segue if you're looking for one. The reason I stopped having money for baseball cards was because I started siphoning to Musicland. <laughs> right there, you go. There you go. Oh, yeah, Sam Goody, Musicland, Circuit City, Best Buy. Yeah, this is when we all kind of like. I mean, this is like really when like music starts becoming important to all of us, like really important, you know? I mean, yeah, we grew up with absolutely. it, but like, like Getz mentioned, we're buying it, you know, we're buying it on our own. Um, 1992 was my first CDs ever purchased, I believe as well. I, uh, I bought, I bought 10 when it was still in the big box. Yep. Right. The long Mormon CDs unnecessarily came in those really long boxes. Anti theft, <laughs> right? Yeah, yep, that's what. The, yeah, supposedly that's what. It was for. I remember at the, in the mall at I guess either Musicland or Sam Goody, um, the mall in Springfield. I, I bought um, my two CDs in the same. I bought I bought the House of Pain and Pearl Jam. 
Nice. So, nice. 92. <laughs> yeah. One of those bands lasted longer than the other. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but no, it was, uh, you know, there's, there, gosh, there's so much, so much to cover here. Um, yeah, we're not going to be able to get it all just in case we yeah, miss something I mean, out. Nobody, so, so nobody but let's, we're let's, probably not going to be able to get everything even I've, we've written down, you know? I mean, yeah. So, yeah. 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 Well, let's start with what we were listening to then um, that okay. came out in 92 or shortly thereafter, right? Maybe it was 93 or 94 when we first started listening to Blind Melon yeah. or something, but... Um, uh, but yeah, as as far as then goes, yeah, ninety two was. A, I remember the first CD I bought was the single soundtrack because I was I was given ten for Christmas uh, and Temple of the Dog for Christmas, and then i I bought uh, I bought the single soundtrack at Musicland, um, and I was introduced See? to the B side. Yeah, <laughs> that well, is state of love and trust <laughs> and breath. <laughs> My first CDs didn't come till '94. I would have still been in cassettes at that time, ah. and uh, a lot of my cassettes were promo copies with the holes drilled in the spines of them, <laughs> um, because my dad knew somebody that worked over at Capitol in Jacksonville. Sure, oh, yeah. so I would get like every George Strait tape that came out or Garth Brooks, and so yeah, I, I was heavily into country. And then getting into rock more, the more I sat and watched modern MTV, <laughs> you yeah. know, because we, we were all inundated with all the videos of the day. I'll, I'll never forget seeing the uh, No Rain video, though, the first time and just knowing that there was something special there, like yeah. not being able to put my finger exactly on it. Um, but like, as I think we, we talked a little bit about in the meeting for this that kind of was a little bit of the 70s coming back. Yeah. It was Blind Melon's sound and their look, especially in that video. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that was that, that video always, always did it for me. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, Levi, did I know the record, the LP came out in 92, the Blind Melon LP. I don't know if like it started getting a lot of buzz. I think it took a little bit for it to start to get some buzz, you know? I want to say, like, maybe 93 is kind of when it broke. You know, it, like the video for No Rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Started being played a lot. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, I remember it as kind of a summer of 93 thing for me, even though the record had been out for a year, um, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. But uh, you're, you're right, though, with the 70s. Um, I'll, I, I mentioned that in the intro, so I guess that's a good thing. I mean, obviously, you know, just the look of them, um, you know, Blind Melon, they didn't look, they didn't look like, you know, um, Poison or Warrant from a few years earlier, but they also didn't look like they were, and I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes here, guys, but they didn't look like they were from Seattle as well, you know what I mean? Like, right. um, the sort of disheveled, and, you know, um, so you could, obviously you throw the Black Crows in that as well, you know? Yeah, um absolutely. I remember seeing the video for Remedy in 92 and um, you know, I, I did not own Southern Harmony until, until like my first year of college, but obviously I heard the singles frequently and I remember seeing the, 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 um, the Remedy video 
and just looking how they were dressed, you know? And I was like, first of all, I was like, these guys are fucking cool. Um, <laughs> I remember the first video, you know, Chris takes a big hit of the joint and blows it out, you know, and um, right where the video starts. And the, vid- and the video kind of has like a, even though it's a very basic video of this, just them performing the tune, you know, in, um, you know, a very stark kind of just, just a, you know, a, a room with like a blue screen behind them. Um, it kind of has a grainy, the film kind of has a grainy look to it as well. So, like, all of it aesthetically just appealed to me so much, you know? Even though I didn't start listening to The Crows heavily until a, f- a few years later, um, I saw that and I was like, well, this is cool. You know what I mean? This wasn't like, oh, like, who's this? What's this dorky 70s thing? It was like, you know, the 70s are, are, are cool again. Um, another video I mentioned in the in the, um, the, the the intro was Madonna's Deeper and Deeper video from the Erotica album from that year. It's like she's at a disco, like, I don't know if you guys watched the video in a yeah. while, but um, it's a sexy video, and she looks cool, everybody in it looks cool, and then also, even though it didn't come out until the following year, um, you know, I assume it was filmed in 92, Dazed and Confused comes out, right? Um, you've got, on the rap end, I mean, with... with the chronic um you know bursting through and making such a huge impact but you know the biggest influence for dre for that album was was parliament you know oh yeah 70 Uh, sounds right yeah exactly so on west coast rap you know the g-funk which is uh, it very much influenced by the 70s uh particularly parliament that really becomes in vogue now and then there's some other a couple other good great rap albums from that year two shorts way too funky and um um two shorts shorty the pimp um you know both definitely big g-funk sounds on both of those as well and th- those are all well yeah and the, the common songs. denominator with all of that music whether it was the crows or blind melon or all the the west coast rap was really good marijuana <laughs> <laughs> i'm just being up yeah like oh, if you look right. at it you like that's when really good marijuana started hitting the streets. And mm-hmm. so, like, what went from, like, metalheads smoking swag <laughs> turned into 70s-looking people smoking chronic, you know? Right. So, you've, you've also yeah, got, on a related note, you've got Fish's big, Fish's first album on a big label as well, you know? So they kind of yeah. start to get... I hadn't listened to them yet, but they start to get some attention outside of Vermont. You know, I mean, they opened for Santana that year. Um, You know, Picture of Nectar is on, I think it's Electra, I think. Um, So, you know, Fish starts to become um, a little bit more than just a college thing or like a or like a a Northeast thing, you know. So the 70s were cool again, and, and we benefited from that, you know, I mean, shit, our that that started to influence our taste. This is around the time, even though it's, I don't know, gets Levi. This is when I I really started to listen to classic rock a lot too. You know, I was like, this is. We mentioned bands that were influenced by the seventies in rock and rap. That's when just like that shit took over for me. That around here, you know what I mean? It was just like this is this is what I'm going to be into. I'm going to start. You know, the next year I'm going to start growing out my hair. Like I mean, this is. Everything yeah. around it, this time. 
you know, in a sneaky album that came out that year to, to speak to that point was um, a live album, uh, The Allen Brothers, An Evening With. Ah, yeah, um, which was the first of two, right? There was the yeah. uh, second evening second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came out a couple years later. Um, but that first one came out, and yeah, my brother had it, and it's like, oh, the Allman Brothers Band, huh? All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm liking this. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and, and uh, obviously an, another a, a 70s act that when Warren and Allen, uh, well, not a 70s act, but you know what I mean, like yeah. obviously the peak of their popularity in the 70s, um, you know, Warren and Allen come on board and they, they really resurrect that band and, and make, mm-hmm. make them a big touring band again. Oh yeah. I mean, it, essentially like sending it into motion for like the next 30 years. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Otherwise they were just kind of fading out. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, well, yeah I, I, I listened to was, that it, it this week. It was like week, Dickie and, and, so and Greg and the hired hands at that point. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Dan, yeah. You're wrong. No, they gave them, they gave them stability. You know, they gave a, a, a good lineup that stayed in place for a few years. Yeah, you know? and a, and a, a fresh shot of songwriting input. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Those guys owe Warren a lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, they really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, th- those those live albums, other than FM radio, were were my real introduction to the Elman Brothers. I think. Any any albums from that year? We talk about what we were listening to at the time. Any albums from that year, you know, and the research up to this episode that that kind of either surprised you or um, you had forgotten how good they were um, or you just hadn't heard them in a while and and you you heard new things. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I'll let you go. No, you can go first. Okay. Um, I I knew that Alice in Chains Dirt was dark. (laughs) and i've known it for 30 years uh listening to it a few times over the last month i didn't realize how intensely dark it is and and how much of a dive it is into uh that of a hard drug user which Mm -hmm. you know you get veiled references in rock and, and and metal um or other forms of of popular music to that but what what Lane Staley was doing then was as unbelievable how honest he was. And that's not to say that, you know, the singer um, isn't always singing about themselves. Uh, that's it's sure. something we often have to remind ourselves of. Um, but Lane Staley, I think, was. <laughs> and or at least about the people he knew and maybe hung out with. Um uh, and it is such an insight into that of, of an addict. And uh, it's really kind of breathtaking in that sense. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize how dark it was at the time. You know, 93, I was like, I, or 92, um, I, I had dirt. And then obviously I listened to it with you a lot, Getz. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I obviously I, I didn't get all the the drug references all that much except for rooster maybe you know mm-hmm. uh, at the time and uh yeah it's some dark shit man um probably we can we can argue you know back and forth what what is allison chain's best record quote unquote but i i would say this is probably their crowning achievement um i i i it's not my favorite jar of flies is my favorite um 
but I think it's the definitive Alice in Chains record, so to speak. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm right there with you on that. I think it's their best, but it's not my favorite. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about Dirt, Levi? Um, I I like it. I don't know if I really like the Sap EP. Like, if I if I'm gonna sit and listen to Alice in Chains, I usually put on the Sap EP. Mm-hmm. But it's just personal taste. Yeah. Sure. The, the album that I hadn't really heard much of ever since then was Angel Dust by Faith No More. Yeah. When we when we first started discussing '92, I I hadn't heard that, and I think the only song really I'd ever heard of it off of it was their cover of uh, Easy. Oh yeah. Which is classic. Yeah. Like it's that like it's. I don't know. You, you, would you hear Faith No More covering Lionel Richie? But they do it with just like seriousness. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. There's no, they, they, there's they nothing. They played it straight. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. But yeah. that that album is super underrated. Um, and it's wild, dude. I mean, like it's, it's all over the place. It's yeah. it's it's nuts. It's I'm sure the record company was like, uh, yeah, like no, well, yeah, yeah. I bet that feeling was prevalent in a lot of record distributor label offices the whole year with everyone. Yeah. Because 1992, the albums were so diverse. I mean, uh, Copper Blue, that album. uh, And so just uh, Tori Amos' Little Earthquakes. That that was a great album that, you know... uh, vulgar display of power yeah it's just the year was just chock full man hollywood town hall by the jayhawks we didn't really even talk much about it in the in the meetings um also the beastie boys really you know would check your head as well you know i mean you 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 could see where they were going with paul's boutique you know the three years earlier two or three three years earlier i think but then it's like well this is you know, you listen to Check Your Head, like, well, shit, this is what these guys are really capable of. You know what I mean? And and I I, I thought that with the Crows and Southern Harmony, too, because it's like you listen to Shake Your Moneymaker, it's like, wow, you know, it's a really solid debut, but it's got this kind of polished bar band sound to it. And I, I don't mean that as a knock. You know, obviously, it's a polished bar band with Chuck Lavelle on keys. But, um, right. you know, you bring in you bring in two studs like Eddie and, and Mark and, you know. You're going to put out one of the best albums of all time. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. But 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 you know that that shows my point was that shows what the crows were capable of as well. You're like Jesus. The second record, you're just like Jesus Christ. It's it's night and day. Like how good it is compared to Southern Harmony or to, to Shake Your Body Maker, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, and and but to that point though, uh, you know, I, I felt like their best stuff was still in front of them. Yeah. Um, in some ways, and that's arguable. Um, but uh, but I, I feel like that that was the case for a lot of the bands that were coming out with uh, coming out with albums in '92 that makes it such a classic year. Whether it be Rage Against the Machine or or the aforementioned Alice in Chains um, or uh, Nine Inch Nails, Stone uh, Temple Pilots, Stone Temple Pilots. Like there were all these really really good records, but. Like all the the best stuff for these artists was yet to come, and Pave, pavement, I think, you know, was slanted and enchanted as well. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and then and Jonathan, I mean, an album that that 
I'm sorry, we kind of deviated from from my original initial question here, but um, yeah, yeah, a little bit. We're, yeah. we're trying to cover as much of ninety. Yeah, sorry. So the audience, we're just trying to pack as much in because this this year is jam packed. Oh, that's um, I, I would even argue, guys, that it's it may be the best year of popular music in our lifetime. I would agree with that. Yeah. Like I said, I, I could only listen to music from 1992 and be okay with it. <laughs> yeah, you, you, would, you would have a good record for about every day of the year, you know? Um, so I, um, yeah. So so my, my, my question was, you know, things that surprised you or came back to you. Levi mentioned Angel Dust. Um, Jonathan mentioned Dirt and how it was. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll say one that... Um, I remember, of course, I remember liking it, and I remember liking the singles from it because they were in heavy rotation on MTV, and I was still watching a shitload of MTV. I had forgotten, guys, um, up until I started listening to it over the last couple weeks, how great "Automatic for the People" is. Mm, yeah, yeah, REM. Yep. That's 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 a five star record, man. It yeah, is, a- and I, and I feel bad for it being my favorite REM record because I, I feel like that that's kind of like a cliche answer that's, that's not the hipster rem guy choice yeah. For, yeah. Uh, for yeah 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 the people that are like a little older than us that like rem yeah, yeah. Not, it's like sorry like i like my rem just a little bit more polished yeah. sorry <laughs> yeah you don't like reckoning <laughs> right. well, also guys another thing about that record aside from the songs um what a uh the, out of time came out just the year before wow yeah. Wow. I mean, talk about a fucking dudes sitting on a bunch of good tunes. Yeah. You know, and Out of Time was still, like, climbing the charts, and they went right into the studio. Wow. And um, I I, I didn't read enough to know, like, if if some of those songs were written during Out of Time. I don't think they were. I I think, like, some of them, I mean, maybe in between the records, obviously, but um, I don't know how fully formed the tunes were, you know, when they went into the studio. But um, it doesn't really have many drums on it. I had forgotten about that, um, which is too bad because they have, they have Bill Berry's a killer drummer. Um, but there's just so many. It's some of the songs almost have like this waltz kind of quality to them too. They're it's so it's so pretty. Yeah. I mean, you li- you listen to Night Swimming. Night Swimming. Yeah. That yeah. song like stops me in my tracks, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. It's beautiful. I'm I'm using generic adjectives here, but it's it's beautiful. It's haunting, kind of. You yeah. know, it's gets you reminiscing. Yeah, that that song, man. I yeah. I um, it it just you put that on, and I I, I, I stop everything I'm doing, and yeah. I'm just I'm 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 just transfixed. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's like this perfect combination of songwriting and production. Yeah. Uh, because they, um, even though I said I said it was polished compared to the other albums, I. It's still like really reined in though at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the right length too. You know they didn't overdo yeah. it. You know there's not there's not like sixteen cuts on it or something. You know, um, it's it's you know it's 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 five star A plus type material. Yeah. You know, it really is. You know, ninety two. You know, all these bands and albums and everything are fantastic. Besides that being at a peak, what I think also was coming to its own was music production. Mm-hmm. Like, 
like music production in 92 was amazing because that's how i got into this whole idea when we were talking about what we might talk about for this episode was that i had been listening to a handful of cds i had gotten recently and the four of them happened to all be from 1992 and the reason they were so good to me was i couldn't granted they may not be the best musical albums of 1992 but they're some of the best sounding and produced albums of mm-hmm. 1992. And those, um, I'll touch on them really fast. The first one was that caught my ear was Los Lobos and their studio album Kiko. And, um, you know, a lot of people at that point only knew Los Lobos from the La Bamba soundtrack. Mm-hmm. You know, which sold like 2 million copies. I don't know if you guys knew that. But, like, the La Bamba soundtrack was huge. And, um, you know, from the opening notes of the song Dreamin' Blue off of Kiko, you kind of learn that this isn't that same band. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, but it's like, this is a band that's now going to, like, take some chances. And, um, you know, they're a blend of, like, Americana, Tex-Mex, Chicano rock, Roots rock, Psychedelia. Um, you know, it, it only sold a, a, a half a million copies which hmm. was st- is still their second most selling record. And um, th- that, that album spawned one of the greatest collabs ever on Sesame Street when Los Lobos performed Elmo and the Lavender Moon, which is on, <laughs> it's on YouTube if you guys at home want to check it I out. I haven't that seen was, it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty great. Um, yeah, so that album, just the sound of it and how well it was produced was what, what took me back. And... Um, you know, they started out as an East L.A. wedding band. And then all of a sudden, in the early 80s, they're opening for Public Image LTD, The Clash, Bob Dylan, The Dead. Mm-hmm. And so I just think their story is really, really unique, and that album is really good. Um, the next one that caught my ear was Lindsey Buckingham's Out of the Cradle. It came out in 92. And... Buckingham had quit Fleetwood Mac in 1987, and so he'd been working on this album for five years, producing it basically all himself, playing almost all the instruments himself, and and you can just hear the amount of love and dedication that he put into the album. Um, it, you know, it, the album is full mainly of kind of more happier, upbeat songs, which you know, might be unexpected coming from someone who had just left a band they'd been in for 30 years or so, mm-hmm. you know what yeah. I mean? But I guess maybe since most of the Fleetwood Mac catalog had been recorded under immense tension, maybe it shouldn't be such a surprise that he finally was kind of in a joy, joyous mood. Um, the other two albums I'll touch on really fast were Katie Lang, and I believe you pronounce it Anjun <laughs> I, I'm not French, so I, I'm not sure if I'm getting that right. And well, then, well, well, well sounds good. Anjou, <laughs> uh, and so yeah, it was her second ever solo album and her first non-country record. Mm-hmm. And um, "Constant Craving" was a was a hit on the charts off of it. And um, this was at a time when she had just come out as being homosexual. 
She had come out as a huge outspoken animal rights activist. Mm-hmm. And both those things basically alienated all of the country and Western Midwest fans. That she those had. are those are also like stances like much riskier to take for your career in 1992 you know, than, they, than they would be in 2022. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, that album, again, the, all of them, they're, they just sound so good. They're some of the best sounding CDs that aren't like special limited editions or anything like that that I own. The last is Lyle Lovett, Joshua Judges Ruth. Um, it's largely a sparse sounding record compared to some of his previous Lyle Lovett and the large band albums. Mm-hmm. Um, but the album shows that he's like not going to just be pigeonholed into being a country artist, kind of along the lines of Katie Lang. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's got, you know, uh, Lyle Lovett's records all have kind of a clever tongue-in-cheek to some of the lyrics, which I like, which I think is kind of neat with him. And, um, you know, the it's produced sneakily well as, as well. They, they uh-huh. all just sound excellent. And they all can be found, basically, in bargain bins, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah. Good, uh, good, good, good. I, I, I didn't get a chance to to listen to those that you mentioned, but I'm adding them to my gigantic, ever growing <laughs> 1992 playlist. So, uh, right. yeah, thank you for those uh, those recommendations. I look forward to checking all those out. Um, yeah, yeah go ahead, Gets. Speaking of sound and production, um, the. Uh, there was one that that hooked me um, that that I had never known of before. Uh, just as I was sifting through uh, all the releases from the year, and uh, that was uh, Jonathan Richmond's album "I Jonathan" is the name of it, which um, obviously intrigued me to give that a spin. And and I didn't realize that this album is considered like the. Um, uh, a, a big cornerstone for lo-fi recording, mm. <laughs> so kind of the opposite end of 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 the the sonic masterpieces that that maybe Levi was <laughs> discussing. <laughs> and uh, so Jonathan Richmond was um, uh, the leader of the Modern Lovers, uh, who uh, formed in the seventies, like a proto-punk band uh, that included um, Jerry Harrison. And um, uh, one other one other member um, in that band uh, was uh, uh, from the Cars. David Robinson, the drummer, um, was later in the Cars, and so um, you know, they, and it was a fairly fairly seminal record there in the seventies. But um, and he released some stuff throughout the eighties. But there's this nineties album, this nineteen ninety two album. Uh, I Jonathan that, that caught my attention and uh, just the uh, he's just got this songwriting style that is he gets away with things that I think other artists wouldn't get away with and um, or other lyricists wouldn't get away with and in that he's his kind of observational uh, lyrics that uh, on their face may seem a little trite but you know he's he's really singing about something meaningful and and um uh, on on uh, i jonathan whether it's uh, uh you can't talk to the dude or 
uh, Velvet Underground, a song about the Velvet Underground called Velvet Underground. John Cale produced uh, one of his early albums. Um, and I just found myself going back to this album. I've, I've probably spun it seven or eight times, maybe maybe nine or ten times over the last month. And it was just super excited. It turns out this, this was the dude in uh, There's Something About Mary. There was like the... Um, the singer and there's something about Mary. Oh yeah. It's Jonathan Richmond. Um, okay. Yeah. And, uh, he kind of got, uh, he got big again in the early nineties. He was on Conan several times. Uh, Conan had him on. I think I remember seeing him on there. Yeah. That's probably it. Um, and, uh, you know, he's still uh, released plenty of records, but um, this one is considered one of his one of his best. It turns out by coincidence, so I was fortunate in that sense. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It, it just really caught my attention, and it's one of those things where because we do this podcast, I learn about an artist or a band, and and I will forever listen to that artist or band only because. <laughs> and the only reason I found him was because. You know, we were we were doing a specific focus for the podcast, and and uh, so yeah, it was that with John, Jonathan Richmond, and then also um, a British uh, band uh, called Ride, uh, which is kind of a uh, a shoegaze, uh, noisy guitar band uh, from uh, the late '80s, early '90s, and in England, and uh, they released uh, an album called Going Blank Again in '92 that uh, I've listened to a half a dozen times and <laughs> the guitars on it are so loud and fuzzy and wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I definitely recommend it. Uh, but yeah, that's another example of a band that I will I'll forever listen to now. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good choices. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll throw in a couple and, um, you know, we'll, we'll post on social media some things about albums maybe that we didn't get to, etc. and ask ask some folks out there to, to tell us some of their favorites as well. Um, I, uh, I talked about hip hop earlier and obviously, you know, a big album like the chronic gets a lot of attention that year. Um, uh, a hip hop album that I was not familiar with, um, prior to listening, prior to researching this episode is, um, uh, gangstar album uh from that year yeah um really really good record um you know very socially conscious um you know it's they were kind of a um mc and producer duo um i'd always heard of them um and maybe i'd even you know streamed a couple of the records they don't they didn't have a big catalog really um but I was I was really impressed with this record. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it or not, um, but uh, it's 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 quite good. Yeah, it's the Daily Operations, the name of the record from 1992. I recommend it. It's really um, super smart, socially conscious, foreshadows many things that happened later in the world, unfortunately. And um, 92 was the year that you kind of saw that with them being East coast mm-hmm. hip hop. And yeah. it seemed like the East coast hip hop was more socially conscious. You got, you got like a tribe called West, it, yeah, you know? It, yeah. Like, right. It met with the, the West coast stuff, which mm-hmm. was, 
kind of yeah, know, about what, having what, a good time. Yeah, uh, Gangstar uh, Boston. They 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 they're um, from there. So yeah, you're right there. It's um, they were they're, you know both coast great, but uh, a little bit different on the east and west coast. And and one one other observation I wanted to make, guys, that kind of three sentimental choices from that that year that I had forgotten about. Um, uh, there are three records that, to me, um, kind of mark the tail end of, and I don't like this term, but I'll use it just for identification purposes, the hair metal era, which had already really faded out when, you know, when written, when Nevermind came out the year before, essentially. But um, you've got Ugly Kid Joe's record came out in 92. Um, Saigon Kick uh, the record in 92 and um, then there's um, Jackal's record which I find quite enjoyable um, <laughs> right um, those three albums could have fit in in 1989 you know what I mean they sound like that but they were all still pretty popular even though they're not um, um, they're, they seem of, a, a, of an era that had passed already so to speak, and I like all three of them. I think they're all fun records. So, right. Um, on. The yeah. only I'm trying to think if there's anything I wanted to. Who, I mean, we really haven't talked much about Rage. We I got to mention yeah. Rage Against the Machine some, um, just because they were the soundtrack of the prototypical angry <laughs> suburban white kid or at least they were for me um, but that first album I didn't hear until later because I, I kind of yeah. missed that first album and I got Evil Empire when it came out and then went back to the first album mm-hmm. but um, it, it's interesting that that album dropped in the midst of all these other albums we were talking about I, I, when I think of that self-titled Rage record I don't think 1992 Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the part that it's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you're right there. I mean, obviously, some, 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 one of many stellar debuts from that year as well. You know, you have STP. Two bands out of LA. Yeah. What's that? Two bands out of LA, right? So right, STP and right. H. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Blind Melon's debut, Pavement's debut. Um, uh, there's White Zombie's debut record came out in 92. Um, there's some. Some really strong debut um, records. Uncle from, Tupelo, Uncle Tupelo, yeah, from from uh, from '92 as as well. Um, you know, I, I I guess you know we probably we could, we could go on and on. Um, you know, the, the record that we haven't mentioned yet that you know if you just if you just if I am just to tally the number of spins of albums that I've listened to from 92 over my lifetime, you know, Southern Harmony probably being, and the Blind Melon one probably being one and two. Um, it's Harvest Moon, you know? I mean, um, yeah. we, we haven't brought it up yet. Neil maybe, maybe, maybe this would be kind of a thing to close on because obviously you have one of our favorite and most iconic artists putting out, um, I don't want to call it a comeback record, by any means, but it seemed like it got him some renewed attention. A little I mean, bit. granted, Rock in the Free World had come out three years prior, but yeah, what what had I, come out? Rock in the Free World. Yes, yeah. I, I will agree. It got him more attention with like critics and the press yeah. and yeah. music because it was sure. his best album since you know for yeah. 
a dozen but years. Like, but like, <laughs> yeah. but like, yeah, you mentioned Rock in the Free World, but like, that's on an, an LP that's just kind of okay, right? Yeah, exactly. you know what I mean. Yeah, this it's was not, his first. I don't think Freedom's yeah. like a great LP. But yeah, really, um, it's okay. Yeah, um, but this is you know start to finish. Yeah, agreed. I, mean, I, I I don't. I think of it as one big piece of music too. Yeah. You know, I it's one of those things. I don't know if I've ever listened to a single track off Harvest Moon. It always goes on start to finish and it always goes on at night for me yeah sure sure um yeah it's yeah it's killer no doubt and it started like this renaissance for him essentially in that sense and that you know uh um his output for the next decade would be phenomenal yeah 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 Um, I, i know we're all um central illinois dudes and a guy that was in this because his band is the stray gators on harvest moon i believe um you know that he had played with a little bit um before do you guys know this um i I, i've got the link here um there's a dude in the stray gators who is from uh tim drummond you guys are familiar with this dude yeah i know the name he's from canton illinois over by havana right so not too far from up where we all grew up and uh, hell of a resume on this guy, man. I mean, he's played with Dylan. He's played with Neil Young. He's played with J.J. Cale, Graham Nash, Dylan, I mentioned already, I think. Ry Cooter. Um, wow. You know, that Midler. <laughs> I mean, his, yeah. his, his, his resume is phenomenal. Um, and uh, I just, you know, I, I, I knew the Stray Gators, but, you know, I always... You know, obviously, when I think of Neil, I either think of Neil or I think of the Crazy Horse. I, sure. I don't often right. think of who's in the Stray Gators, you know. Right. Um, right. Uh, but yeah, I was I was really impressed to see a Central Illinois guy uh, put together such a nice career. Yeah, I'm not trying to swerve off topic, but you just mentioned Ry Cooter, and he was in one of the I forgot to touch on. There were two little super groups in 1992 that came out. Okay. One was Little Village, which is Ry Cooter, John Hyatt, Nick Lowe, and Jim Keltner, and they released their their, upon, their only album, as far as I know. I don't, they may have done another tour later, but I think it's their only studio album. That's a good record, too. They may have actually have a live album, too, now that I think mm-hmm. about it. Um, but yeah, that album's excellent. And then the other little supergroup... If you want to call it that, I guess it was uh, Archangels. Do you guys remember Archangels? No. Archangels were uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's rhythm section. So Chris Layton and um, Tommy Shannon paired with two Austin, Texas guitarists. One is Doyle Bramall the second, and the other is Charlie Sexton. Oh, wow. and that, both, both those guys played in '92 as well, huh? Okay. So yeah, it, it was both of those two guys on on lead guitars, lead and rhythm guitars, along with Stevie Ray Vaughan, bass player and drummer. Hmm. And they they out. released just that one album, as far as I know, called Archangels, and it's excellent. Nice. If you're into Texas blues, yeah. Style. No, I'm I'm adding it to the list. Uh, that's that's one I'm not familiar with, honestly. Yeah. No, I know the players, but I don't know the group. Yeah, yeah. They, they were those were the two little super groups of '92 that we got. <laughs> um, so, some additional ones. Oh, first of all, clarification: Uncle Tupelo's album that year was their third album, not their first. Um, uh-huh. uh, Lucinda Williams released a record. The Reservoir Dog soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Cracker. Ah. 
Stone Roses, Izzy Stradlin, the Juju Hounds, Alejandro Escobedo. Yep. Tom Waits' uh, Bone Machine was one that I was kind of introduced to. Wait, um, Stone Roses' Second Coming came out in 92? Uh, no, it turns to Stone. Um, which is like a bit of that. I don't know if it's like a compilation or what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not. I don't think that's like a, a that was considered yeah. a, an album of new music. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Tom Waits's Bone Machine, which I I got into. PJ Harvey, um, as well. Spiritualized Sade. Uh, oh, yeah? I I spun the uh-huh. Sade a, a few times, admittedly. Yeah. Uh, made for some really uh, groovy afternoons of coding. <laughs> um, sensual afternoons of Cody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Peter Gabriel, Nine Inch Nails, uh, Jesus and Mary Chain. Yeah, it's it's off the, the chain. The year was stacked. Off the chain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Blues for the Red Sun, Caius. Nice. Um, some good, Levi, some good, some pretty good country records, too, from that year. Mary yeah. Chapin Carpenters, Come On, Come On. Uh, Mark Chestnut, Long Necks and Short Stories. Um, Alan Jackson, a lot about living. Uh, Winona's debut. Yeah, those are, those, are, those are all some. That's that's right before to me country kind of went downhill. You know, I mean it's. Right. You know, there's there's not there's not many country albums I like after 1992. So. Yeah. Um, oh, and uh, Megadeth's Countdown to Extinction, not country, um, but uh, definitely an album that was important to me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll throw another one out there, guys. With it, it, it was immensely successful. I, I didn't look up how many albums it sold, but I assume it went platinum because Tennessee was such a huge song, single. The Arrested Development album from that year, as well. Um, yeah, that was that was huge. Um, and it, it, it's was, good. Yeah. Who was the lady who sang on Tennessee? I always enjoyed that album or that song when it came on. You know, it wasn't yeah. like a genre of music that I listened to. Mm-hmm. At that age, but I never turned it off if it came on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's unique. It's um, because yeah. it's 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 not like any like the hip hop we discussed earlier in this episode. Dion Ferris is, the, is okay. the female singer on that, and um, not that you would remember her name, but she later had a big radio hit on the. I know what you're doing. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She's a ripper, man. I like. Oh, that dude, too. she can sing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah she was. She was the main female vocals on Tennessee, and I don't know if she got like any credit for it at all. <laughs> she performed live with him on like Arsenio and shows like that. I think back in the day. Huh. Well, well, guys, it was. It was, it was it's it's such a jam packed year and, and we, yeah. we we I feel like we we covered a lot but we probably just barely scratched the surface. Obviously, yeah. our, our our listeners, if you have some uh, other ninety two albums to uh, to recommend, uh, I'm sure we overlook some things. Um, please let us know on social media. You can follow us. Uh, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on uh, the Twitter uh, at Rock in Chew. That's in as in Nirvana's Incesticide came out in 1992. Um, that was one where you know they wanted to rush something out. I assume the right. record company wanted to because it's like you know never mind, so huge. So like we got to put something out. So Incesticide is mostly stuff that had been recorded earlier, uh, and then also I think some of it's from like a John Peel session. 
I think so anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But um nonetheless, I, I had that record. I had Incesticide on C on C D. Um and it was nice to revisit some of the tunes as well. I, I like um Son of a Gun a lot. Ben a Son was always Ben a Son, yeah. So another one to add to the list. So please um tell us what you like from nineteen ninety two. And uh, it was a great year to revisit in music and baseball. And uh, you can go listen to all of our episodes um, at rockchew.com and on any of your favorite podcasting apps. So until next time, have a good one, and we'll see you later. Peace.